If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 14. Lord willing, for the last time, at least in this series, by God's grace, we'll complete chapter 14. And and as we launch into verse 18 of chapter 14 of Romans, we we enter into unchartered territory. Because the dude that I've relied on heavily... Um, in studying the book of Romans, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, um, he preached through the book of Romans, and by the way, it took him 13 years. Yeah, I know. So uh, we've been in it for about two and a half years. Um, we'll, we'll, we will complete this, Lord willing, before year three, but he preached this for 13 years. And so if you've been at all like bored or like impatient with the process or whatever, believe me, you would not have been bored in the least. I would commend his uh, 14-volume commentary on the book of Romans highly, highly to you. Um, I'm just not that skilled to go that slowly and soak that much out of it. But um, Oddly enough, his last sermon, as I was going through the commentary, the commentary ends at chapter 14, verse 17. I was like, why is that? And so I did some research, and his very last sermon was on Romans 14, verse 17. And it wasn't by his design. He felt it was by God's design, because after that, he had a major surgery that was scheduled. And so he took some time out, and he never returned to the pulpit. He ended up retiring and devoting the rest of his life to writing, and I'm very grateful that he did devote the rest of his life to writing and put a lot of his sermons into commentary form and book form. But his very last sermon was on Romans 14, verse 17. And oddly enough, he was asked later why he thought that was the case, and he felt like the Lord stopped him from preaching because he didn't know enough about joy in the Holy Spirit, which is what that verse, next verse, went on to say at the end of verse 17. And because he didn't know enough about it, the Lord stopped him from preaching. So whether that's the case or not, I no longer have him to rely on, but I've still got uh, Leon Morris, Douglas Moo, John MacArthur, uh, John Murray, James Montgomery Boyce, Donald Gray Barnhouse, some incredible men of God that have walked this path. And we've got the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 14. Our verses for this morning are 18 through the remainder of the chapter. But by way of context, I want to start with verse 16. So church, this is the word of God. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on, him, on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to gather with your people and extol the greatness of your faithfulness. Father, I pray that that would ring true in the hearts and minds of every person in this room, that we can say in faith, great is your faithfulness, that you are at work, and that you are sovereign, and that all that you are doing You are doing for our good and your glory. May we trust that, even as you continue to conform us to the image of Christ for your glory. We pray that you would do that through this passage, Lord. God, I ask that you would bring me your anointing physically to speak, spiritually to reflect the content and the mood of this passage. We pray for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to apply these truths to our lives so that we would look more like Jesus and being transformed to look more like Jesus that we might glorify you more as a people. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're keeping notes, there's four sections to this passage that we're going to undertake this morning. First of all, verse 18, which is really a summation of what we talked about last week. We intended to get to verse 18. We didn't get to it. And so we're going to conclude verses 16 through 18 by looking at that verse. And then in verse 19, he's talking about building up one another in the body of Christ. Verses 20 through 22, he's talking about tearing down, how we sometimes can tear down one another in the faith. And then we're going to conclude, as Paul does in verse 23, with a very stern warning for the one who is weaker in the faith. And as we unpack that warning, we're going to get to the very nature of faith and to the very nature of sin itself. So that's where we're going this morning. First of all, verse 18. This is a summation to what we talked about last week in verses 16 through 17. We didn't get to 18. He says there in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. Now, we all want that, right? We all want to be acceptable to God and approved by man. So let's look at what it means to thus serve Christ. The word thus is going to refer us back to the kingdom priorities that he mentioned in the previous verse. In verse 17, he said, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As we said last week, the main thing is not about whether we eat the meat that's offered to idols or whether we drink the drink or whether we go to an R-rated movie or whatever the issue of morbid scrupulosity is as he's been unpacking in chapter 14. The, the, The main thing is not those things. The main thing he told us is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It is about these kingdom priorities, righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. With righteousness, we understand this to mean that we must always bear in mind, as, as David prayed at the beginning of the service, that we have no righteousness of our own. But in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, as our Lord, as our Savior, through faith in Him, His righteousness is credited to us by faith. So that we are made righteous, not because of any righteousness in us, but because of an alien righteousness given to us by grace through faith in Jesus. But also peace. That this imputation of Christ's righteousness, that the appropriation of his death and resurrection as sufficient payment for the penalty of our sins, both of which are accomplished by Jesus on the cross at Calvary, that these bring us peace with God. That we see ourselves as once having been enemies of God because of our rebellion against him. That we are righteously under the ra- rightly under the wrath of God. That we are his enemies at enmity with God, Paul says. That we who are enemies of God, by grace through faith, are given peace with God. And then thirdly, joy in the Holy Spirit. And, and this is not about a kind of fake, plastic happiness where we put on a fake smile and we put on a happy countenance regardless of our suffering and negative circumstances. Instead, it is confident contentment and gladness that we who are enemies have been given peace with God and that all is well with our soul. So he says, whoever thus serves Christ. Whoever serves Christ in that way. Now this word serve here in verse 18 is the Greek word duleo, and it's the verb form of one of Paul's favorite words to describe himself. He often calls himself the doulos of God. Doulos meaning the slave of God, the bondservant of God, one who voluntarily serves at the pleasure of their master. Back in chapter 6, he talked about how we who were once slaves to sin have now been made gratefully We have been made to be slaves of Christ. We're now bond slaves of Jesus. But here in verse 18, it's a verb form. And it basically means worshiping God by how we live. Living as a bond servant of Jesus for the glory of God. And so when he says here, whoever thus serves Christ, he's referring to those who voluntarily serve Jesus with their life. Who voluntarily offer up their life, as he said back in Romans 12, selves as a living sacrifice. So he's talking about the one who, who offers themselves up to God as a bondservant. I'm yours. I'm living for you. All that I have, all that I own, all that I am is yours. And that we serve him with those kingdom priorities in mind. That there's no righteousness except the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. That we who are enemies of God have been given peace with God. And that this gives us a confident contentment and joy in Christ. That we are glad in our souls, not just a plastic smile on our face, but that we are glad and content in our souls because all is well because of what Christ has done. And we serve him, we live for him as a bondservant out of that kind of life. And he says, whoever does this is acceptable to God and approved by man. So let's look at each of those phrases. 
Whoever thus serves Christ in that way, with that kind of mindset, first of all, is acceptable to God. Now, we need to be careful how we read this, because Paul here is not undermining salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He's, he's, he's not saying here that serving Christ with these kind of king, kingdom priorities in mind makes us acceptable to God in some kind of legal justification sense. He's been very clear in chapter 3, 4, and 5. Go back and read those chapters. He was very clear that we are only rescued from what we deserve by grace alone through faith alone. In a risen Christ alone. That's, all, that's the only way in which we're saved from what we deserve. That's the only way that we, are, we have received some kind of legal justification to be made righteous before God. But this word translated acceptable here in this verse, verse 19, is actually it's a compound word in the Greek, which means literally well-pleasing. And we saw it in Romans 12, verse 1, the very first part of the practical section of Romans. Where he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, or well-pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. So again, he's not saying here that if, as long as we serve Christ with these kind of kingdom priorities, that, that we're going to be legally justified. Only grace alone through faith alone is, does that occur. Instead, here, he's saying that serving Christ in this way, living as a bondservant of Jesus, voluntarily offering up our lives to serve him with these kind of kingdom priorities in mind, with a proper focus on them, is well-pleasing to God. And, and church, shouldn't, shouldn't that be what we want? As followers of Jesus Christ, that should be something that we desperately desire. That should be the driving force of our life. That we want to live in such a way, as a bondservant of Jesus, that he's pleased. Not in a check-the-box check kind of way so that we make ourselves legally justified, but because we want to honor him and glorify him. We want him to be well-pleased with us and our life. And so that's how we do that. But not only is serving Christ in this way acceptable to God, he also says it is approved by man. Unfortunately, we often swap those two, don't we? Often it's the approval of man that supersedes the being accepted or well-pleasing to God. That we're serving at the pleasure of man instead of the pleasure of God. So we need to be careful of the order here. This word here, to be approved by man, is, is more objective in nature. That there's a standard, that there's a test, if you will, and we meet that standard and are approved by man. Two things that we should note about this phrase, to be approved by man, whoever thus serves Christ is approved by man. Two things that we should note by it. One, it's true. I mean, it, it really is true. If we begin to major on things like, we should eat this meat offered to idols, or we should never eat that meat offered to idols, or we should drink or not drink, or dance or not dance, or go to R-rated movies, or that Christians ought to do this or ought not to do that. If that's what we're majoring on, when those things become, our, become primary to us, then the people around us will begin to notice, and we will not meet with their favor. Paul, this is way, Paul's way of saying, listen, nobody likes anybody like that. Nobody likes someone who is majoring on these kind of secondary morality issues that aren't covered in Scripture. So nobody likes somebody like that. But 
if we keep the main thing the main thing and we serve Jesus Christ as a bondservant of his, keeping focus on what is priority, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, and people will respect that. People see that we, we, are, we are serving Christ with integrity and we'll be met with the favor of man. So it, it's just, it's a fact of life. It's true that we'll be approved by man. But, but we also need to see here that it's secondary. It comes after being well-pleasing to God. That should be the driving force behind seeking to serve Christ in this way. So that's our conclusion to the section that we began last week. Whoever lives as a bondservant of Jesus, maintaining a focus on these kind of kingdom priorities, that I'm serving Christ not in order to earn his righteousness or to in, in order to earn his being accept, acceptable of me, but because he's already made me acceptable in Christ. And that because of his imputed righteousness credited to me by faith, that I have been given peace with God. Me, an enemy of God, deserving judgment, has been given peace with God. And that my service unto Christ is marked with genuine joy and contentment and gladness in Christ. That these things are the priority not eating or drinking or whatever. And if we serve Christ in this way, we are well-pleasing to God and approved by man. So before we move on, we should ask ourselves, do we serve Christ in this way? Do you serve Christ in this way? Do you live as a bondservant of Jesus with this kind of mindset? Or are you more, more focused on these kinds of secondary issues that he's been dealing with in chapter 14? These things that Paul says, these are not the main thing about the, about the kingdom. Are you serving Christ to try to earn his acceptance of you? Or are you serving him because he's already made you acceptable in Christ and you simply want to live your life as a means of worshiping him? We should encourage one another in the body of Christ to serve Jesus this way as bondservants, offering ourselves up to him as sacrifices so that we might be well-pleasing to him, so that he might be honored and glorified through us, not just individually, but corporately as the family of God. Now, with the mention of being approved by men at the end of verse 18, Paul now in verse 18 shifts the focus back to one another to consider one another when we're deciding whether or not we should engage in this activity or whether we should abstain from this particular activity. He shifts the focus back to considering one another and how it might affect them. And so now in beginning of verse 19 through the end of the chapter, he develops this consideration of one another yet again. So verse 19, he starts to talk about building other, one another up in this regard. Verse 19 begins with, so then, which tells us that this is a conclusion statement. He says, so then let us pursue now, what's interesting is that that word pursue is the same word that elsewhere in Scripture is translated as persecute. Pursue, persecute. When Jesus talks about expecting persecution in the Gospels, this is the word that he uses. And the word means to, to run after someone or to chase after someone in order to catch them or to cause them to flee. That's what the word meant there. But here, the same word is used to tell us to run after or to chase after, to pursue those things that, that do what? That make for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That we should 
chase after those things, that we should run after those things. The peace here that he uses is the same word that we found in verse 17 when he talked about peace with God. But here Paul is not talking explicitly about peace with God. He's talking about peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about peace between believers in the body of Christ. In other words, if we're majoring on whether or not we should eat meat or not eat meat or drink alcohol or not drink alcohol, if we're majoring on those sorts of things, then we're not going to be pursuing peace. Instead, we will be, as Paul said in the very first verse of chapter 14, we will be quarreling. That's the whole impetus for chapter 14 and him dealing with all of these different issues in that church because they were quarreling with one another over this. One person eats meat, the other person doesn't eat meat, and they were passing judgment on one another. And they were judging one another and and, um, looking down on one another because of that. There were quarrels. Instead, we should pursue peace, the things that lead to peace and to mutual upbringing. We shouldn't want to be quarreling with one another. We should want this sort of peace. But in order for that peace to happen, we need to pursue the things that make for peace and the things that make for, as he says here, mutual upbuilding. The building up of one another, as the NIV says, for edification. This word refers to that which encourages us to grow in our walks with Christ, to move forward, to mature in our walks with Christ, to continue to grow in our faith, to have greater faith and trust in Jesus. Not just independently, but corporately as he builds us up into the household of faith that God intended. Paul talks in Ephesians 4 about how this often has application to how we speak with one another. He says in Ephesians 4:29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So often uh, edification or building one another up has to do with how we speak to one another. But here in chapter 14, verse 19, Paul isn't referring explicitly to how we talk with one another. He's talking about how we live with one another, how we act around one another, how we serve alongside one another in the body of Christ. Now, I believe that our speech is included in his exhortation in verse 19, but I think it's much, much more than speech. He says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, if you look at verse 18 and verse 19 together, you'll see a connection there. You'll see a connection between thus serving Christ and pursuing things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. That, that, that Paul's not talking about two different ways of living. He's talking about the same thing. That, that those who are thus serving Christ with those right kinds of kingdom priorities are also those who are pursuing, are living a life that is pursuing things that makes for peace and mutual upbuilding in the body of of Christ. So he's talking here about serving Jesus, living as a bondservant of Jesus, living for his pleasure, to be well-pleasing to him, and that this is the same thing as pursuing those things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. So what are those activities, those behaviors that cause us to pursue things that make for peace and upbuilding, mutual upbuilding? Well, Paul doesn't give us a list here, does he? He doesn't give us a thing, well, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do that. And so we can't refer to that and, and try to 
build our lives around a list like that. But we can infer here that at least part of what this means is to do what we've already talked about, to live as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, to live for his pleasure, that if, if we're all focused on that with the right kind of kingdom priorities, that, it, that it, we will be pursuing those things which make for peace in the body of Christ, between brothers and sisters in Christ, and for mutual upbuilding, that we'll all be on the same page, that we'll all be moving towards the mission of making disciples for the glory of God, and that we will be encouraging one another as we do it. We won't be tearing one another down. We won't be judging one another along the way. We'll be encouraging one another to have greater faith to continue to pursue the mission that God has for us. This is the heart behind what Paul is getting at here, that we would live this kind of life together. So church, let us encourage one another to do this, to live as bondservants of Jesus for the glory of God, and so experience peace in the body of Christ and mutual upbuilding along the way. So what we have in the next section, verses 20 through 22, Paul seems to describe by way of summary here, there's a lot of repetition to what we've already seen, But he's describing here the kind of living with one another in the church that's not in alignment with what he just described in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. He says, do not for the the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So much of what we read here, if you've been with us for a few weeks, it's, you recall this. He's reiterating himself to what he said in, in verses 13 through 15. He says in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. This is a reiteration of what he said in verse 15, the second half of verse 15, where he said, by what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So the phrase, the one for whom Christ died in verse 15, correlates to the work of God in verse 20. He says, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the work of God. And and as we mentioned, when we looked at this in verse 15 a few weeks ago, Paul is referring here to the weaker brother, the one who is weaker in the faith. That for some reason, uh, because he's new in the faith, because he's a new believer, or perhaps because he hasn't been discipled, he, he has a misunderstanding of grace. And he's potentially susceptible to being influenced to stumble by watching his brother or sister in Christ, who is stronger in the faith, exercise their freedom in eating the meat or drinking the wine or whatever the case may be. But regardless, they are a believer, He's talking here about the one for whom Christ died. That is a believer in Christ. An unbeliever is not the one for whom Christ died. So he's talking here about a genuine follower of Christ, the work of God. He's just weaker in the faith. And Paul said, if you remember back in verse 14, he said, although nothing is unclean in itself, it is unclean for the one who thinks it is unclean. And so if they knowingly eat something that they know that they shouldn't eat, then for them it is sin even though it is clean because they're violating their conscience. 
And so this is a very serious warning that Paul gives here. Almost always in Scripture, when it talks about someone being destroyed, it's talking about their spiritual destruction. And the one who is spiritually destroyed is judged forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. We mentioned this a few weeks ago when we look at verses 14 and 15. We affirm perseverance of the saints. That those whom God saves, he keeps to the end. That all genuine followers of Jesus Christ will remain faithful to the end. But we can't allow our conviction of that doctrine to cheapen what Paul, the, the warning that Paul gives here. He's, he's very clear here. Do not cause your brother to stumble for the one who sins against their conscience may be spiritually destroyed. And so we should just leave it at that and not try to muddy the waters by affirming perseverance of the saints, well, then this is just a hypothetical that really doesn't mean anything. This is real, this is true, and we should just simply heed the warning of the Apostle Paul here. Be very careful about how we exercise our freedom because if we cause a brother to stumble and violate their conscience in this regard, it could mean their spiritual destruction. So allow the word of God to simply warn us and let's heed that warning. But we should note here that in verse 15, the word that's used for destroy is different from the word that we see here in verse 20. In verse 15, it's the word that's almost always interpreted as meaning spiritually destroyed. But in verse 20, it's a word that sometimes refers to something that is torn down. In fact, the New American Standard actually translates this verse that way. It translates verse 14 uh, excuse me, verse 20 verse, uh, of chapter 14 this way. Do not tear down the work of God. Do not tear down this, this faith that God has built in this person. Don't tear that faith down. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's the same word that's used here in verse 20 as destroy. So, Paul has been talking in verse 19 about building up one another in the faith and pursuing the things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding edification. And now he's talking about the potential for us to tear down one another in the faith. So how might we tear down one another? Well, Paul has been talking about it all throughout this chapter. We tear down one another in the faith by causing them to stumble, by being careless in how we exercise our freedom in Christ in these different activities that aren't clearly delineated in Scripture as right or wrong, when we're careless in those things, then we could cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble and tear them down in their faith. And so we know that this is wrong. Paul has told us in chapter 14 this is wrong. But in verses 20 through 22, he gives us three encouragements to help us as we try to live a life that's not causing our brother or sister to stumble. The first is one that we've covered before, and that is love your brother more than your liberty. We mentioned this a few weeks ago when we covered verse 18, excuse me, verse 15. In verse 15, he says, if your brother is grieved, harmed, if you will, in their faith, if he's grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now he says in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, meaning your weaker brother. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Do not for the sake of food destroy. So by carelessly exercising our freedom, we could cause our brother to stumble. And what is our reward for that? Food or drink. 
or whatever it is, whatever issue of morbid scrupulosity we're dealing with. That's a very, very small reward for such a high price, such a high cost, the tearing down of our brother or sister in Christ. So he tells us, love your brother more than your own liberty. The second encouragement to keep us from causing our brother to stumble is that it is a good thing to limit your freedom out of concern for your fellow believer, your brother and sister in Christ. It's a good thing to limit it. Look at verse 21. He says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Does he say it is a sin to eat meat? No. Does he say that it's a sin to drink wine? No. Does he say that it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble? Yes. We should hear the Apostle Paul. We should hear the breath of God speak to us. This is a good thing to voluntarily limit our freedom when there is the slightest risk that it might cause our brother or sister in Christ to stumble because it might tear down their faith and it might spiritually destroy them, whatever that might mean. And so it is a good thing for us to limit our freedom in these kinds of circumstances. And then thirdly, to help us with not causing our brother to stumble, don't broadcast your liberty Instead, keep it to yourself. Listen to the exhortation from verse 22. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, let's be very, very clear here. He is not saying don't share your faith. That's not what he's saying here. The the, the, the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul is sharing his faith sharing the gospel and exhorting the church to do the same. So what is he saying here? He's referring here when he says the faith that you have, it is the faith that you have to eat the meat offered to idols. The faith that you have to drink the wine. The faith that you have to abstain from observing those special days that others are saying, hey, if you're a Christian, you've got to observe these days. So you, you, you have the faith that tells you It's okay for you to eat this. You've been discipled in the faith, and you know, you understand grace. And so you have the faith that understands it's not about eating and drinking. But the faith that you have, which is that freedom in Christ to do those things, he says, keep to yourself. Don't broadcast it. Keep that between yourself and God. Don't announce your liberty from the rooftops. And I would, I would suggest that the 21st century equivalent of shouting something from the rooftops is social media. And so Christian, may I just in, encourage you and exhort you to be very careful about broadcasting your liberties on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Because when we do that, church, we have a much greater risk of causing someone to stumble because they're going to see you exercising your freedom and you're not going to have an opportunity to talk with them. And that may be a freedom that their conscience is not yet allowing them to engage in. And it may tear down their faith. So this leads to the warning of the second half of verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What does that mean? Well, think about it. What reason might one have 
to pass judgment on themselves for what they approve. The word approve, their meaning, their, their freedom in Christ to eat the meat or drink the wine or whatever. What reason might they have to pass judgment on themselves for that activity which they approve? And the answer is when the careless exercise of their freedom causes their brother or sister to stumble. And so he says, don't broadcast your liberty. Be careful. Be thoughtful. You can exercise your liberty, but not carelessly, not heartlessly. In, in verse 14, he says, when we do that, we're not walking in love. When he does it here, he says, we're putting at risk the faith of our brother or sister in Christ. With verse 23, Paul now closes out this chapter with a very stern warning to the weaker brother or sister, the one who is weaker in the faith, who doesn't understand the meaning and, and get grace very well. And he says this, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So when he says whatever, whoever has doubts, he's referring to the weaker brother. He's weaker in the faith. For some reason, he has a lack of understanding about grace. And, and this coupled with his um, thought that the eating of meat or the consumption of alcohol or whatever the situation might be for him is wrong and it's, and, and it's sinful. And those things coupled together create a situation where if he eats and if he drinks, then for him it is sin. But what's important here, we, we've understood that. That's repetitious. I know that. We've been looking at that in chapter 14. But what's instructive and important for us not to miss in verse 23 is why it is sinful. He says, because the eating is not from faith. And then he concludes, whatever is not from faith, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul's statement here gets to the very nature of sin itself. Sin apparently is not just actions or attitudes or behaviors or what we do and say. The very root of those sinful actions and those sinful behaviors is a lack of faith. The very root of any sinful action is unbelief. A lack of trusting God. Some actions and behaviors like Paul has been talking about in chapter 14 and as we've been discussing in our base groups as we've sought to apply these truths over the last few weeks that, that aren't explicitly told in Scripture, hey, that particular activity is sin. Well, some of those actions and behaviors for some people is sin. And for some people... It isn't sin. What is the difference? The difference is what is at the root of that action and behavior. And so sin must be defined not just by the action itself, but by the root of the action, what it springs forth from. So if you, if you think eating meat is sin, and you do it anyway, then Paul says then that eating from faith is then you're not eating from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. But, but what makes that weaker brother's eating of that meat not from faith? Why, why does he describe it that way? I mean, we understand that it's sin. Paul's been very clear in this chapter. But why is that eating of that meat for that weaker brother described as 
eating not from faith. Put more simply for you and I, what is it that we, why is it that we are said to be not acting in faith when we go ahead and do something that we know is wrong? Why is that described, and we know it's wrong, we know it's sinful, but why is that described as not acting in faith? And the answer to that question will get to the very nature of sin as well as the very nature of faith itself. So let's seek to answer that question by, by asking another question. And that is, why do we do what we know is wrong? If we know something is wrong, why, what's going on in our mind that causes us to think, well, we're going to go ahead and do that? What causes us to do something that we know is wrong? And the most obvious answer is because on some level we understand, we think, we believe, we conclude that doing that thing will cause us to be more happy. That life will be better, that that'll be best for us if we engage in that activity or that behavior. And if we don't, if we don't engage in that thing, then on some level we won't be quite as happy as we could have been. Life won't be as best as it could be. We think that activity or behavior is what is best for us. But therein is the difference between having faith and not having faith. Faith partly includes trusting that God is at work. That he's busily at work ensuring that what the future holds is what is best for us. That's part of what faith includes. It's looking to the future and trusting that God is at work. And and so therefore, a lack of faith is not trusting that God is doing that. And so we take matters into our own hands and we do things our own way. And we try to make life happier and life the best that we can make it by doing our own thing apart from God. John Piper put it this way. And he can articulate this a lot better than I can. We do what we do because we think doing it will make life more pleasant or at least more bearable. But if that is so, then it is easy to see how our behavior in that regard is not from faith. Faith would see the possible wrong or injury which our action may cause and would feel no need to risk it in order to make our future happier. Because faith, here's the key, faith trusts God to construct a future for us which is vastly to be preferred to the one that we could make for ourselves. Therefore, it is obvious that when we try to make our own future happy at the risk of wrong or harm or sin, if you will, we are certainly not acting from faith, for faith rests in God to shape the best future for us. Oh, church, would that God would make us a people of faith in this regard that we would trust that our holy and good and sovereign God whose purposes cannot be thwarted is at work right now. That he's working right now as you sit in that chair, as I preach from this pulpit, that God is at work right now ensuring that the rest of today and tomorrow and next week and next year is the best possible future for you and I. Oh, that God would make us a people of faith in this regard. See, faith is not just trusting that 
God will save us from what we deserve, the penalty of sin. We talk a lot about that. That is faith, but that is not only faith. That is trusting that God will save us from what we deserve by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That is saving faith. That is part of what faith is, but that is the not, not the only part of faith. Faith is also looking to the future and trusting that God is working, and he's working to ensure that that future is what is best for us. Now, of course, part of what that means is that some of the things that are best for us are not some of the things that we would have planned for ourselves, like trials and suffering. But faith is trusting that even in those things, that God's hand is working. Faith says, faith says God is, is even working through those things to bring about what is best for us. This is why Paul said back in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Faith is trusting that God will use the trials and the suffering to produce in us what is best for us. Faith is trusting that God will work out every trying and troubling circumstance for his glory and for our good. Back in Romans chapter 4, Paul reminded us that even Abraham was justified by faith. But faith in what? Faith in all of God's promises. And so he said in verses 20 and 21 of Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. Church, faith, saving faith, is trusting that Romans 8, 28 is true, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Faith is trusting, Psalm 23, verse 6, faith is trusting that God will ensure that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Faith is trusting that, Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. Do we have that faith? Do you have that faith? God will never leave you, never forsake you. Even when you think he has, he has not. That's faith. Faith is not anxious about tomorrow, but rests in the confident assurance that God's got tomorrow. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 15, next chapter, verse 13, listen to his prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That word believing is the verb form of faith. It's faithing. May God, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in faithing, in building your faith so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul wants the believer in Rome to abound in hope because he's growing in his faith. That's what he wants for us as well. So back to chapter 14, verse 23. In the case of this weaker brother who believes that it is wrong for him to eat the meat, if he eats it anyway, then his eating is not from faith. Because faith would say, I trust 
God to give me everything that I need. I'm trusting God and his ways to point me to the future rather than seeking his own happiness apart from God. And that's what makes it sin. So three implications of verse 23, of this this perspective that we really need to grapple with that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The first implication we've already mentioned, and that is that the root of sin is unbelief. The very spring of all sin, what it proceeds from is unbelief, a lack of faith, a lack of trusting that God is at work. And this lack of faith Church, it displeases God. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so this, this, this unbelief that's at the root of sin is, is displeasing and dishonoring to God. Th- think about it this way. Think of this analogy. Let's say you had a very acute need in your life, whatever it might be. And you had a friend that came along and, and he offered his help. And he promised, he made a promise to help you, and that promise was on his own honor. On my honor, I promise to help you with this need. Sin is like telling that friend, no, I don't think what I need is your help. And furthermore, I don't trust you to give me the help that I need. I don't trust you. Now, how would that friend feel? They would be insulted, they would be offended, and they would, they would be in the right to be angry with you for, for, for that. Just throwing it in his face like that. And church, that's what we do every time we sin. That's what we do every time that we sin. We say to God, not our friend, but a holy and sovereign God. That's who we're saying this to. We say, God, I don't trust you to do what is best. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hands and do my own thing. That's the unbelief that it is that is at the root of every sin. Consequently, another thing that we learn from these truths is that sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Now there are do's and don'ts in scriptures, in the scriptures. And when we do the don'ts and when we don't do the do's, then that is sin. Most assuredly. But sin is not limited to these lists. Instead, because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, then church, anything can be sin. Not just the things on the do and don't list. Church, when I get up here to preach, preaching, if it's not done from faith, Trusting that it is God that is working, preaching could be sinful. Coming to church can be sin. If you're not, if you're not coming to church trusting that, that, that God is at work, and listen, that, that, that trust may be small, that faith may be weak, that's okay. We remember the father of the child who was demon-possessed, who went to Jesus to, to have his son healed, Jesus said, with faith, anything is possible. And the man said, I I believe, I I have faith, but help me in my unbelief. Church, God loves to answer that prayer. But if whatever we do is completely without faith, it's sin. Yes, eating meat offered to idols can be sin, but abstaining from meat 
offered to idols can also be sin. Drinking alcohol can be sin. But abstaining from drinking alcohol can also be sin. Church, anything can be sin. Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In pursuing holiness, in fighting sin, which is what we're to be about in the body of Christ, encouraging one another to, to fight sin and pursue holiness so that, so that me, we might be a reflection of the goodness and glory of God to a lost world, so that our lives might be a worship offering to him. But in fighting against sin, we need to, need to guard ourselves from by falling into the lie that sin is limited to those lists of do's and don'ts. Any action, any behavior, any thought can be sinful if it does not spring forth from faith. And so let us encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. It's critical. A final implication that I want to close with from verse 23, and this thought that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, is a very sobering implication, and that is that all things are sin for the unbeliever. Isn't that a natural consequence of Paul's statement, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin? If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you do not have, have saving faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve, then on the basis of Paul's statement, everything you do is sin and is an offense before a holy God. Why? Because nothing that you do springs forth from faith because you don't, do not have faith. If that describes you this morning, I want you to feel the precariousness of your position. And then I want to beg of you to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. To place your trust, your hope, your belief, your faith in Christ alone to save you. Righteousness, peace, joy. Admit that you have no righteousness of your own and that your only hope is that this Christ who came and lived the perfect life and achieved perfect righteousness, that his righteousness can be yours by faith. That you who are an enemy of God like the rest of us because of our sin can be given peace with God through Jesus Christ as your Lord. And that that will erect in you not a fake plastic happiness, but a soul joy that expresses confident contentment and gladness in the God of the universe who has made you his own. Would you come to faith in Christ? Let's pray.